0: Please be seated. And if you would, we're going to park ourselves there so you can go ahead and open to Matthew 24. Well, Since I've already done the reading, why don't we pray that prayer? We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Now, I've not made a secret of the fact in the past that uh, I'm not, I don't love the Revised Common Lectionary all the time, but I, I saw this week that the assigned readings were all out of Matthew's Gospel for Advent this year, and I thought to myself, well, just this once, maybe we'll stick with it. And that's still the plan. It matches. We were just in the Sermon on the Mount. We did the Great Commission, right? But I decided that before I looked carefully at the actual passages. And uh, Tuesday night, I had very serious concerns running through my mind, having made this decision, because this is definitely kind of a cryptic passage, not the most perspicuous, as, as it were, right? But um, First off, this passage had no obvious connection to Christmas. I'm like, all right, well, there's strike one, right? And then second, this passage is red meat for every dispensationalist out there. I'm like, all right, strike two. And strike three, I was like, well, the whole passage starts with a but, meaning that we're skipping like an entire chapter of context that would clarify what the heck Jesus is talking about right here, right? But sometimes I like a challenge, so stick with me. We're going to do this thing. Um, We don't have time to cover the whole... Chapter, but we'll fill in the details as needed. My understanding is that Advent was originally conceived as a season to look forward not to the birth of Christ per se, because that already happened. The point was to look forward to his second coming. And in that context, this passage makes a lot of sense as an Advent reading, right? Uh, And in reality, you know, the first and second coming of Jesus have interesting overlapping themes. And, you know, one is foreshadowing and the other one is the fulfillment, right? And this explains why so many passages in scripture are kind of cryptic, because it can be hard sometimes to parse out which of the events in a given passage it's talking about, right? And in the Old Testament, sometimes the predictions almost seem to overlap. Uh, So the confusion isn't really the fault of the lectionary. Uh, But the focus of today's passage is clearly the second coming, which is a very important part of our theology. It's why it's in the creed. We recite it weekly Uh, We have a savior that didn't just save us in the past, he's coming back to redeem everything. Now, not many people have great success with comebacks, do they? Uh, Many have tried, many have failed, and you see it in many career fields, sports, politics, musicians. But how often do people come out of retirement and have more success than they had originally? Like, that's like vanishingly rare, right? Uh, Almost unheard of. Some do it better than others. You know, Michael Jordan came out of retirement twice. The first time he came back and won three straight championships. It's like, okay, that's pretty good. The second comeback, not so memorable. There's not a whole lot of Washington Wizards Michael Jordan jerseys out there that I'm aware of. Um, Tom Brady this year so far has a stellar five and five record and a failed marriage for his trouble not sure i would call that a successful comeback grover cleveland for those of you who remember obscure american presidents you know history uh, he was president for four years lost re-election and came back four years later to win again he was less effective in the second term but he did manage it donald trump is trying to do the same god help us Uh, I've known ministers that have come out of retirement, but it has always seemed to be like an emergency situation. Like either the pastor needed money or the church is so desperate that he's like the only guy that can pull everything together, right? But I think that in in human terms, we tend to admire people who retire at the top of their game. You know, uh, people who know who to hang up their cleats, so to speak. Ty Cobb great baseball player said that he would retire if he ever batted under 300 for a full season because a player that can't bat over 300 isn't worth much (laughs) he never had to do that at 41 years old in 1928 he was playing part-time and still batted 324 so he retired at the top and called it a night but most people don't do that but why do most people that do attempt comebacks why do they do it I think a lot of it's ego most of the time and and maybe nostalgia for the old days. And and there can sometimes be desperation in the mix. Uh, But much of the time, it's because they don't know what to do with themselves in retirement, right? Uh, They feel like they weren't made for this quiet life, uh, so they go back to what they know. In other words, they lack a proper sense of purpose, right? But Jesus isn't like most of us, is he? He's not driven by ego or nostalgia for the good old days, and he's certainly not driven by desperation or a lack of purpose. And it's odd, because to human eyes, he left at the lowest possible point. He had, in fact, died. Some people knew that he rose again. Not everybody was aware of that at the time, right? Uh, And Jesus didn't exactly get a royal welcome on his first stay here, did he? I mean, there were moments where people got excited a little bit, right? Palm Sunday, that kind of thing, but there was always a great deal of ignorance in the mix and a lot of misunderstanding about him, and he was viewed largely as a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. John 11 says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And of course, this reaches sort of an anti-climax with the crucifixion. I can't imagine wanting to come back here after all that, you know, That's crazier than moving back to Philly, right? And uh, yet, it is a central fixture of our theology, is this idea that he is coming back. And not reluctantly either, like it's always been the plan, and Jesus talked about it frequently. Now, to give you some context, without going into the whole chapter, he starts this chapter by announcing that the temple in Jerusalem is doomed, They're all excited, admiring the grand architecture. The disciples come to them like, man, Jesus, check out these buildings, right? And Jesus hits them with this, like, heavy downer, like, yeah, that's great. Uh, It's all going to come crashing down pretty soon. It's like Dave Green would rebuke me for being that defeatist from the pulpit, right? But uh, this is the way Jesus rolls. And this entire chapter is about the end of things. Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and he speaks of a terrible era of persecution, and he warns that there will be false Christs and people claiming to be him and people claiming they saw him and that people are going to be misled. And it reaches a climax in the section right before this, really, with him talking about the heavens being shaken and the sun itself is going to go dark, he says. Now, a lot of the things he's mentioning in this passage were fulfilled just a few decades later when Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans, the temple was demolished. The temple is still gone and persecution has been the rule throughout much of church history so a lot of this stuff is even ongoing but he caps off this lengthy passage by zeroing zeroing in so to speak on what happens at the very end after all that and he re- he speaks of the return of the son of man and he says that immediately after all the tribulations have ended he's coming back and it's going to be a big deal Jesus says that the Son of Man will return, not like Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Donald Trump, right? It's not about his ego. It's not even about what he wants. It's really all about the Father's eternal plan. And he will literally bring down the house. Listen to how he describes his return just a couple sections before this. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud (coughs) trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That sounds like quite a show, right? And you hear these things, and the natural question to ask on any sane man's lips is, well, gee, when's that going to be? When is this happening? And I don't know about you, but most of my life is structured around what's coming up, upcoming events, right? Um, I get excited or else experience terrible dread depending very much on what's on the calendar. And, of course, it's much worse if you forget things or don't put them in the calendar. And I often do this because, you know, when you do that, happy occasions you end up missing entirely. And then if you have a deadline of some sort, then it creeps up on you and then, you know, you're in trouble. And one of the blessings of pastoral ministry has been that it forced me into Google Calendar, And I hated it at first, but now I can't tie my shoes without it, right? And I find myself adding all kinds of events, even like a year away, and even things we probably won't end up doing just so that I remember that it's at least a vague possibility. It all goes in there. I've got General Assembly, Music Fest, the pinball convention, like the important stuff, that's all in there. But I need to know what's coming and when so I can be prepared and I won't double book anything, right? That's a natural enough question when it comes to the end of the world, isn't it? How can I plan my Saturday if the world is ending? But Jesus gives no satisfaction on that front. And in fact, in one of the more puzzling verses in the entire New Testament, for my money, he tells us this in verse 36, but but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. How in the world can Jesus be in the dark about this? He doesn't seem to be in the dark about much of anything else, is he? I mean, wasn't he in unbroken fellowship with the Father from all eternity? This is a strange statement. And I bet it confused his disciples, too. And it must have confused the early church as well, because you may notice that in a lot of Bibles, there's a footnote in the Bible saying that some documents don't include the phrase, nor the Son." Most translators would say those documents are not the more reliable ones, but the fact that they exist tells us that the early church had a really hard time and were really eager to edit that line out. Because it doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, Docetism was an early church heresy that argued that Jesus was not fully human, he only seemed to be human, he seemed to have a body, this kind of thing. And... In that case, it's like, well, yeah, he really is just divine, and uh, of course he would know all these things. But orthodox theology and a proper acceptance of this verse and all of scripture requires us to say that Jesus, in his humanity, did not know everything. That sounds kind of crazy, but we see it starting from his birth, don't we? We know that when he was born, he had to learn to crawl, and he had to learn to walk, and he had to learn to use the outhouse, right? Like, these things had to be acquired over time. He had to learn to do carpentry. It's not a sin that he had to learn those things. This is called the limitations of the flesh. It's the meaning of Christmas, in part. We read in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, that when Jesus was 12, he was in Jerusalem, and he amazed the religious leaders there by knowing a lot of things. He had a lot of understanding, is the way Luke puts it. But... Luke also says at the end of that little section that he increased in wisdom. So Jesus, in his humanity, accepted many limitations. And among those limitations, he tells us here in Matthew 24 that he has surrendered his knowledge of the exact day when he will return. Now, I'm sure he could have asked, but he didn't offer to. So apparently he prefers to be in the dark on this question, and he prefers to leave us there too. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to plan? Well, some people plan by panicking in advance, right? The church has done this many times in our history, uh, especially since the Second Great Awakening. Uh, We've had multiple crackpots offer their expert opinion that they have finally found the exact date of Jesus' return. They've got it cracked. Uh, Somehow they have gained knowledge that Jesus himself did not have. So you had a Baptist preacher back in 1844 who misled thousands of people into thinking that Jesus was going to return on a certain date, and it didn't happen, and it is still referred to in history as the Great Disappointment. Many people walked away from the faith. The rest of them formed the Seventh-day Adventists. The Jehovah's Witnesses have been predicting the end of the world since their foundation a little over 100 years ago. Hal Lindsey told us it was going to end in 1988. Some of you had that book. Harold Camping predicted it at least six times. There was the whole Y2K thing. Jerry Falwell thought it was going to end then. Then you got John Hagee and his blood moons and goodness knows what other kind of nonsense. But it's funny because even unbelievers have a a form of an eschatology, a doctrine of the last day as it were. We have lots of politicians and activists uh, that make a living predicting the end of the world. They do it all the time, every day. And sometimes it's nuclear Armageddon, sometimes it's climate change, Uh, sometimes it's overpopulation, and yet simultaneously it will be underpopulation. I've seen this just in the last week. I saw stories panicking because the world has reached 8 billion people. The same week I saw articles complaining that male fertility is reportedly less than 50% of what it was 50 years ago and concerned that, like, are we going to be able to reproduce and stay alive? Same week. Some brilliant individuals in Europe have been throwing food at famous paintings to apparently let us know that oil is going to kill all of us. That makes sense. There's logical connections there. We hear a form of end times philosophy from the political class every two years. What do they say every two years, political pundits? It's the most important election of our lifetime. I've heard this like clockwork every two years for decades. Why do they say it? Because the world might end if we get it wrong. And yet the world carries on. I would go ahead and say that Jesus would say, I told you so. Because he laid it out black and white 2,000 years ago. But there's another danger that Jesus is addressing here because on one hand we'd be fools to keep predicting his return as if we know more about this thing than he did. But on the other hand Jesus is not saying to just stop thinking about it, is he? Which is kind of weird. If I don't know when it's coming and I can do nothing to speed it up or slow it down right, why should I think about it at all? Why worry? And yet Forgetting it, that's what Jesus says we must not do. He spends most of this passage giving examples and illustrations of being, people being caught off guard and unprepared. And he uses the example of the people in Noah's day. And people going about their business harvesting grain, grinding at the mill, thieves in the night. And the theme of the illustrations is universally this, that Jesus' return will be sudden and swift and people will not be looking for it. He starts this passage with an incredibly bold statement that no one knows the date, but he ends the passage with the insistence that we must be ready anyway. (coughs) Why would you do that? How can you do that? How can you be ready when you have no definitive time frame? I can't even keep my house ready for company for more than about a day. Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, always says not to spend emergency money at Christmas because Christmas is not an emergency. It comes every 25th of December. That's not an emergency. And it's true, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus on a defined date, but without a defined date for the second coming, being always ready sounds honestly exhausting. And yet, there's a key command in this passage, and it comes in verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake because you don't know. Stay awake. I should just take that little phrase, babe, along with, like, I love salt, you know, or where he says salt is good, you know, like, stay awake. See? Like, I'm, you know, Jesus is on my side. Georgia usually makes the opposite argument of what Jesus is saying here. Why would you stay awake voluntarily? You know, I'm tempted to sit up for all kinds of stupid things. I'll sit up waiting and rechecking the news on election night, whatever. And she'll say to me, go to sleep. Why stay up when you don't know when something's going to happen? If something comes up, we'll wake up and deal with it. She treated everything like this, including childbirth. (laughs) But Jesus says to stay awake figuratively. I know. Uh, He says to stay awake because you don't know when this will happen. Our enemy in this situation is complacency. We're not allowed to fall asleep at the switch. We must always be ready, always looking forward. And when Jesus does show up, it'll be just like Gandalf says to Frodo, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Just like that, Jesus will show up precisely when the Father means to send him. So Jesus says we must be always ready. Semper paratus, just like the Coast Guard. But what does that actually look like? Well, that's tricky. Because Jesus engages in a little bit of hyperbole here, and the illustrations don't exactly make clear what is commanded or forbidden by that specifics of staying awake. Uh, Verses 40 to 41, he describes how two people will be working he uses the example of men in the field and then women at the mill. And he says, suddenly one of them's going to vanish. Now, that seems to be a reference to the same event Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, about believers being caught up in the air to accompany Jesus upon his return. That's not a pre-tribulational rapture, just for the record. But it indicates to me that working is not incompatible with being ready. Uh, If Jesus snatches up men in the field and women at the mill, then it seems that they must have been ready enough in some sense, even though they're working. They were probably a bit surprised to find themselves suddenly airborne. I imagine some people will feel that. Jesus talks about the people of Noah's day proving how unready they were for the flood, and he says their carelessness was characterized by, he says, eating and drinking and getting married. Why, of all the nerve. Of course, if you've read Genesis 6, you know there's more to it than that. But Jesus summarizes it this way for some reason. Now, we have to read everything in the larger context of Scripture. And we've already seen that Jesus had a reputation for eating and drinking, if you remember. And marriage is held up again and again in the New Testament as something worthy of honor. And more than that, it's a picture of Christ in the church. So what is Jesus getting at when he puts it this way? I think what he's getting at is more a question of expectations. As he says in verse 43, it's like knowing that someone is planning to break in tonight. We just watched Home Alone on Friday night because Christmas movie season has officially begun, right? And, of course, the whole movie is premised on a planned break-in, which they try multiple times, right? But when Kevin, the main character, hears that Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are planning to come at 6 o'clock, he hears this conversation. He spends the entire afternoon booby-trapping the house, right? He stops to eat dinner, but when the clock strikes 6, he springs into action. And I noticed for the first time this year that he never even gets a bite of his mac and cheese, He spends so long prepping for the invasion that he misses dinner. Is dinner a sinful thing? No. But being ready is more important. It's more important even than eating. And that's what Jesus means here. If a thief is coming, even without a definite time, you don't let your guard down. Now, of course... Most thieves don't have the common courtesy to give you a heads-up in a specific time when they're planning on showing up. In our last house, we slept through three break-ins. This was obviously not intentional on our part. I would have been up, armed, and waiting if I had known, which is more than I could say for our old dog, Zorro. I make fun of our current dogs because they're not terribly bright, but compared to Zorro, they both look like Rin Tin Tin. That... Stupid animal uh, slept through at least two of those break-ins, not a peep, not a bark, and he was sleeping downstairs the next room over from where the thief broke in. That's not exactly vigilance of the sort that Jesus is talking about here. That dog had way too much golden retriever in him. I think even if he had been awake, he would have just licked the guy's hand and probably would have welcomed him back the second time. This is the opposite picture of what Jesus is getting at. Now, I don't know why Jesus insists on comparing himself to a burglar. But the truth of his statement is obvious. You wouldn't sleep on a thief, not intentionally. And that doesn't mean you never eat or drink or work or get married or anything else. It does mean that you're paying attention. You have a waiting, watchful attitude. You expect the unexpected, if you like. You still live life as it comes, but you also never forget that Jesus is coming back. You need to be waiting, but without sitting still. Calvin says it means being uncertain but prepared. The best way to understand this might be to look at the opposite example that Jesus gives about Noah's day. Uh, Jesus says that they were eating, drinking, and getting married right up until the rain started falling. In Genesis 6, we're told that the people on earth in Noah's day were indeed getting married, and it also speaks of intermarriage with like, giants and stuff. It's kind of a strange chapter, but it specifies that the people did everything wickedly. So in Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So it's not the food and the drink and the marriage in and of itself. It was the evil intents of their hearts. Genesis doesn't give a lot of details on what that looked like, but if that's not clear, Peter in his second epistle actually explains it a little further, and I think it sheds light, perhaps, on what Jesus is getting at here. Peter says in the third chapter of that book, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. right, that's a mouthful. We're not going to cover 2 Peter 3. But I want you to notice first and foremost that Peter says that the sin of that generation in Noah's day was not that they ate and drank and got married per se. The problem was that they did everything without reference to God. They were secular materialists. The original atheists. They assumed that everything would be the same tomorrow as it was yesterday and that nothing would ever change because the world is all there is. They were the deists of the ancient world. If God existed, he only existed as the great clockmaker. He made the world and walked away. He has nothing to say to us in the here and now. And how foolish they would have felt after a whole day of rain. And how filled with horror as the waters kept rising day after day beloved the sin of that generation was taking God's providence for granted that they could have God's good gifts but they could have it without God the people in Noah's day thought that the world would sustain itself independently forever and they didn't realize that even as they lived in their sin and rebellion they owed every breath that they took to a creator who was graciously sustaining them and providing for them and they never thought there'd be a reckoning Or a judgment. And that sounds a lot like the current generation, doesn't it? Paul says in Romans 1 that unbelievers see the glory of God all around them, but they suppress the knowledge of God and live like he's not there. Things haven't changed that much. The world keeps eating, drinking, working, and marrying, living life. But they do it on their own terms, never asking God what he thinks. We can't even get a clear definition of marriage out of them, which makes me think we're even more confused than Noah's generation. Meredith Klein, the great Old Testament scholar, argued that the Noaic the flood is actually the midpoint of human history and that the ancient world is something that we can't even begin to comprehend because almost no record exists of it beyond a handful of chapters in Genesis. And everything else was lost. Everything. Why? Because they lived like judgment would never come. It's not the eating and the drinking, and the working, and the marrying, because even Noah and his sons ate and drank and got married, right? And I'm willing to bet that the building of the ark, that was kind of labor intensive, right? So living life, doing those things, that's not sinful. But we need to do it differently than the world if we're going to obey Jesus' words here. How can we do all of these things and still stay awake, as he puts it? I think it's in our attitude. We need to do all of these things but holding it loosely. We need to work, marry, eat, drink, and enjoy it thoroughly, but we need ever to be mindful that all of it is passing away. That your marriage is not eternal. Your job is not eternal. Your accomplishments will not last in this world. This is why Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to lay up treasures in heaven because it is pure futility to invest in this world for the long term. Doesn't mean that we don't put in the work. But we hold it loosely. And I think this is important for us as believers, especially in America, because we tend to think in terms of a legacy that we can leave behind, don't we? Monuments to the work we have done. We do this even in the church. And yet what Jesus is saying, and Peter confirms, is that none of it will last. It's all reserved for the fire at the end. The only thing that will stand in the judgment is Jesus and his elect, You can't take anything with you. Moreover, you can't really leave anything behind either. It's all gonna burn. In other words, nobody's going to be walking the new earth one day admiring the monuments you left behind. And I think we all know this deep inside, and sometimes it makes us sad. Uh, I get bouts of melancholy every now and again. And I had one yesterday. Uh, I I was wrestling with a sort of sense of futility, Um, the sense and feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, Is anything I'm doing making a difference, this kind of thing? And it reminded me, actually, it it brought back to mind my, my favorite Thanksgiving movie that we did watch on Thursday, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. If you haven't seen that, you need to fix that. It's a great comedy, but there's a scene near the end where John Candy, a traveling salesman who sells shower curtain rings, laments they're, they're sitting and drinking and he's being free with his thoughts and he says, you know, when I'm dead and gone, the only thing left to prove that I was here was a few shower curtain rings that haven't fallen down yet. Some legacy, huh? And when I thought about it, it kind of hit me in a new way because I thought to myself, that's that's true of me. And it's true of all of us. About all that you and I will leave behind is the equivalent of a few shower curtain rings that haven't fallen down yet. And they will. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that's okay, (laughs) you don't have to leave behind a grand legacy. You don't have to worry about your earthly investments. The work matters, but not the results so much. That's not going to matter in the long term. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Of course, the world doesn't. They may predict the world's destruction, but they don't anticipate the judgment. There's no meaning to the destruction that they're thinking about. Calvin says that Jesus will return while the world is sunk in brutal indifference. Well, let's not be indifferent then, beloved. Everything that Jesus says here should sound threatening to unbelievers, but not to us. Because we're the ones who are going to rise to meet Jesus in the air. We're going to have a front row seat to watch him remake everything that we spent our lives trying to fix to no avail. Including ourselves. That's something to look forward to, even if you can't put it in Google Calendar. Staying awake is about an attitude, and it's one that we can learn from the kids. How many of you kids out here are looking forward to Christmas? Yeah, come on, Lyle. Maybe. Why? Why are you looking forward to Christmas? shy all of a sudden aren't we it's the presents I know but it's more than the presents right it's the parties right how many of you have trouble sleeping on Christmas Eve hmm. little tykes with their eyes all aglow I know trivia question for you was Jesus already born or not yeah, that's right So are we waiting for his birth? No. We're celebrating a birthday party, right? And it's certainly worth doing that, but we're celebrating something in the past, right? And we do it with parties and presents and music and lights and a lot of excitement. And you guys are very good at anticipating the birthday party, right? We still get very excited about his first coming. Beloved, I'll address this more to the adults. We need to be even more excited about the second coming than the kids are for the first. We should speak of it the way our kids talk about Christmas and like the inevitable reality that it is, that Jesus is coming back and that it's worth being excited about. Because if you know him, his return is not a day of destruction, but the day of rebuilding. Everything's going to be all right. And in the meantime, we can eat, drink, and be merry because this world is not all there is. We can love our spouses more fully, not because marriage is eternal, but because the eternal Savior wants us to enjoy it and to honor him through it. We can enjoy and appreciate this world in ways that the unbeliever can't possibly because we know that the one, we know the one who made it, and we know that he's coming back. So we can enjoy it as a gift in the meantime. Beloved, we serve a Savior who knows how to make an entrance. Last time he came pretty quietly, not so next time. And it is right that we celebrate his first coming, so I want us to enjoy the whole Christmas season, because without a first coming, we'd have no reason to celebrate the second. He came to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. So eat, drink, and be merry, but don't forget when the real party starts, is what I'm saying. It's not on December 25th, but a mysterious date already determined in the Father's mind. And whether it comes in your lifetime or after, you aren't going to miss it because Jesus is coming back. And it's more of a guarantee than Christmas is this year. And we're going to be in the class that's flying. And thank God that in the meantime, he's not asking you to build an ark. Just to remember and to keep watching. Because every day is Advent. We live forever in the spirit of anticipation of the greatest comeback of all time. So get excited like the kids are excited for Christmas. Stay awake and get excited. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for this promise of this great event. We thank you even that you have left us in the dark as to the date because we would only mishandle it and make a mess of it anyway. But Lord, help us to live not in dread of that day and not as if it will never come. Lord, help us to not live like the world. Help us to live like we know this is passing away, Lord, and yet to model that truth by enjoying this world more than unbelievers can while simultaneously looking forward all the more to the return of your son. Help us to get excited about that and to live ever with that excitement and the readiness for him to come. We thank you that he is coming. We thank you that it's certain. Help us to remember that this week as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.